Well, we are jumping into a new year, and along with stopping like we did last Sunday to pray together on both of our campuses, because that's the way we've been doing things for years and years and years. No better way to start out than to cry out to God, recognizing it's not our programs, it's not our building, it's not our staff, it's not our stuff that gets anything done. It's God. We also find that it's helpful to take a pause before you rush into a new year and remind everybody... No matter how long you've been here, remind everybody of who we are as a church, where we're headed, and what we think it's going to take for us all to get there together. See, our church is 21 years old now, and I've had the privilege of serving as your first and only so far lead pastor for the past 20 of those years. And so I've had the privilege of seeing that thing grow from like 80 people to 1,600 people on two different campuses. And so, oh my goodness, the number of things that have changed about our church in the past 20 years is mind-boggling. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of things that are so different today than in 1995 when I first arrived. In fact, for a little nostalgia, raise your hand if you were here in 1995 when I arrived. Get them up nice and high. You were here when I arrived, and some of you were like, Infants, suckling infants, but you were here. Yes, good. You know what? Keep them up a minute. Thank you. Look around. Look around because this is rare in our day. Thank you for investing two decades of your life into one local church. That's a whole lot of love. You can put them down now. That's a whole lot of money. That's a whole lot of prayers. That's a whole lot of serving and sacrifice. Thank you. But here's what I want to do. Regardless of when God brought you to our church family, I want to remind everybody that those dozens and dozens and dozens of changes have more to do with the number of people God has called us to care for. It's more. The level of technology we have with which to do ministry. It's pretty, you know, it's cool the things we can do now. There's more than we can do. We had a microphone in front of a cassette tape player. That's low budget. We got some better stuff going on. So there's a, there's the level of technology has increased. And the location of where we've met has changed over and over and over. As we went from a living room to a Synergy Conference room to Turkey Foot Middle School to Dixie High School to Scott High School. And finally to Gunpowder Road and on to Fort Thomas. But here's what I want you to hear. Those changes that have to do with number of people at the church, level of technology location where they meet are not the most important things about Grace Fellowship. Never have been, never will be. The most important things about Grace Fellowship were set from the very beginning and have not changed. And it's those things that have not changed that I want to talk to you some today about. See, it all starts with our big rocks. Some of you know exactly what they are. Others of you need to be reminded. And some of you will hear it for the very first time. But our church family, from the very beginning, has been standing on some big rocks that we call our core values. And these big rocks really do help us know what we're going to do and not do. What we're going to get into and not get into. Where we're going to put money and not put money. What we're going to encourage you to do. What we're going to further develop and not They guide us. They really do help us. And it keeps us as a church family from jumping onto the bandwagon of every church fad that comes down the pike. And when you live in America, there's plenty of that razzle, dazzle, fad kind of stuff. And so as a church family, we've chosen to focus on a few things and try. I'm putting the word try in there. And try to do them well. And we're trying to make sure that those few things that we do focus on are the most important and biblical things. But instead of standing here and just rattling off the eight big rocks like I do some years, let me get you to hear it from some of the rest of the team that serves here with me now. Check out this video. Isaiah 48 says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We want all we say and do to be anchored in God's eternal truth. The amazing grace of God, the unmerited favor He has shown us through our Lord Jesus Christ means we have been saved from death and hell, meaning we've been saved from the penalty of our sin. But it doesn't stop there. 
We're also saved from the power of sin working within us so that we can please God in this life. That's what makes grace so amazing. We are actively praying, sending, and going to the world so that God will be worshipped among every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. As pastors and leaders, we're called to equip the saints to do the work of the Lord. We offer training and equipping through our annual CDT training where people can be equipped with the tools they need to start doing real ministry. Prayer, desperate prayer, not just flare prayers thrown up in time of immediate need. Why? Because real change, lasting spiritual fruit, breakthroughs, and God's power and presence in our lives only come by prayer. I'm convinced that people change and grow best at close range with other believers when they bear one another's burdens and speak into each other's lives. This happens best within small groups. We gather together each week, not as spectators, but as a body of believers, joining voices to praise our great God. We sing to align our hearts with the truths of Scripture and to increase our appetite for an eternity where worship will never cease. Trusting that God limits, orders, and controls all things for His glory and our good, it will change your life. It will change how you see things and how you react to things every day. You maybe didn't know it because there's always things behind the scenes. And when you walk into even a physical building, there's a foundation that doesn't lots of times get a lot of airplay or attention but every sound building has a foundation. Our church has a foundation. Those are the big rocks. And what I think is really cool is like the first young man, Aaron Barnett there, that, that chose to be the one to say something about the Bible. I, he was probably two when I came here. And we've got people now serving with me. I used to be the only one to promote these big rocks on behalf of the elders. And now I'm, it's my joy to be serving with a team. Brad Spence that spoke about the worship. He was a pilot who came to our church and moved to this area to be a pilot, but he played the keyboard. And so when he came to my small group, I'd been praying for a keyboard player. We had no keyboard player. We had me on the guitar and a guy with a conga drums jammed between his legs, wearing a rainbow-colored shirt unbuttoned to his navel that we keep, kept having to say, please don't do that. That was it. I said, we need keyboard, and we need him to button up his shirt. And Brad Spence came to our, my small group, and I said, you want to see the church office, which was in my bedroom downstairs? And he said, sure. And we walked down the steps, and I stepped into the bedroom that was packed with bookshelves, because I have all these books. And he turned and looked at the shelf right there and said, I have that book. It was a big, fat music theory book. I said, why do you have that book? He said, I'm a music major from Messiah College. I said, what do you play? He said, keyboard. I said, you're an answer to prayer. I didn't ask him if he wanted to play. I said, you're an answer to prayer. But here's where it really gets cool. He said, my parents said, when you move to northern Kentucky, if you join a church and they need a keyboard player, we'll buy the first keyboard. And God has just continued to do things. And now he's on staff full time serving as our worship leader. I could go on and on and on. God has answered so many prayers. But the rocks haven't changed. Number of people, level of technology, location, none of that matters. That's not the most important stuff. The stuff that matters the most is the same. And I want you to know that as the times have gotten darker and harder and more complicated and confusing, I am only more excited about our big rocks and our mission and our vision than I was 20 years ago when I arrived. When I first, when I first arrived, I'm just as jazzed as I was when I first arrived with far more hair than I have now. I got 20 more pounds hanging on me than I had then. When I arrived in my Navy Taurus station wagon, loaded down with little kids and an eight-month pregnant wife by my side. But enough about me and the past. Here's where you come into play. Regardless of when God brought you to our church family, here's where you come into play. Big rocks, church vision, Mission, all that stuff. You can come up with cool little slogans that you hope will be memorable and catchy and it rolls off the tongue. You can print it and post it around. That all means nothing unless real people embrace it and start to live it out. It takes real people to turn vision and mission into reality. Real people. And so that's why the elders and I rolled out a fresh vision last year of saying, you know what? What kind of people are we going to have to be to see these big rocks and this mission begin to get traction and impact our community and our world? 
And so we've been saying, we're asking God to make us the kind of Christians who don't just rattle off eight big rocks and say, that's what we believe. We're different. To make us the kind of Christians who have the courage to say it. Oh, that was weak. We're a whole year into this. Please tell me you know it. Who have the courage to. The confidence to. And a heart that's willing to. Sacrifice. It's going to take courage. It's going to take you using words and opening your mouth. And it's going to take sacrifice with your time and your money. Why? Why would you do that? Because of the truth of God's word. We have truth in a day that's filled with lies and errors and deception and confusion. Because of the mission of God's church, she doesn't sit still. The church of Jesus Christ has never sat still. She's on the move because her Savior is on the move. And why? Because of the mercy of God's Son. That same mercy that you've tasted, that you've experienced... Jesus wants to extend that same mercy to other people that are working around you, playing around you, living around you. That's how he works. Through real people like us. To continue to draw people to himself. So, to help us do this more effectively, I'm kicking off a brand new sermon series today that I'm calling Live Out Loud. And I'm asking God to use this series to make us more courageous and contagious. Stay with me. Courageous and contagious while still stopping short of obnoxious, arrogant, and militant. But that's not the same thing as saying, well, if we don't want to be obnoxious or arrogant or militant, we'll just be silent. You can't do that, folks. I'm asking God to use this series to make us more courageous and contagious. And to get it started, I want to take you to one passage that I think drives home the fact That there is something more. There is something more and bigger and significant than Hollywood and the NFL and Washington and Wall Street. That there is an eternity outside of this temporal that has trapped so many people into thinking that the world is no bigger than what they can see and touch and taste right here, right now. And that is a lie. And it's a deadly lie. Because we're surrounded by people who are created in the image of God. And because people are created in the image of God, that means they're going to spend eternity somewhere, either in heaven or in hell. And that final eternal destination for every human being you lay your eyes on is determined by what they choose to do with Jesus and the gospel in this life. You realize that? What they choose to do with Jesus and the gospel in this life. And so that means the stakes are high. And that means regardless of how jazzed you are about your job this year or whatever else. As believers, you've got a reason to live for something that really, really matters. Every human being you look at is created in God's image and will spend eternity somewhere. You've got a reason to live for what really, really matters To live for Jesus and to spread the good news of the gospel and the free offer of the gospel. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 16. And follow along as I begin reading in verse 19. Oh, you know what? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I forgot. This year, I don't want you bringing your Bibles. Just listen to me and trust me. No Bibles. I don't want you to look at it. Don't bring them. You don't need it. We'll just throw something on the screen every now and then. Not. (laughs) Now, Bibles again this year. Yes, bring your Bible. When I read a passage, I want you to see it. I want, I want your Bible to become worn out and you know your way around God's word. Look with me at Luke 16, verse 19. Now, if you've got a red letter Bible like me, then you know Jesus is speaking. But understand, he's telling a parable. He's telling a parable and Jesus is speaking. Verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar Named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's bosom is a euphemism for paradise or heaven as far as the holding tank of heaven before there really is the new heaven and new earth. Abraham's bosom was carried to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
and being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Now, this is a very disturbing and sobering passage. But I want you to understand it's passages like this, and this is not the only one, that takes off the table the whole concept of annihilation. Okay, maybe there's a hell, but when people get there, they're just annihilated. This uses the word torment three times. It speaks of pain and agony. If you read the book of Revelation towards the end with God's judgment, you see the same kind of description Don't hear me saying, I delight in that. And that's where wicked people are going to go. When you read passages like this, and I had to live in this passage all week, you ought to feel so burdened. Your heart ought to break. When you speak of hell, if you believe in hell, and I do, you should speak of it with a broken heart. And that's what I bring to you today. But I can't back off and say, let's try to find a way to to say that means something different. The Bible doesn't teach annihilation. It teaches a literal, eternal hell. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. There's the word for the third time. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot and nor can those from there pass to us. Here's what else I want you to notice. The decision every person makes in this life as to what they want to do with Jesus and the gospel fixes forever their eternal destination. There is no second chance. There's no changing. Beyond the razzle-dazzle in this world and the money and the entertainment and the busyness, folks, souls are at stake. They're real people with real souls who, who will live eternally somewhere. And it's fixed. It's fixed. That's what you see in this passage. It's fixed. But now there's a great goal fixed. Verse 27. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Here's what else we learn about hell. I hope you'll never, ever again be able to laugh and that you certainly wouldn't be the one that would make fun and mock this way when you hear people say, I don't care if I'm going to hell. So are all my friends. And we're going to party, 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 party. This man, even though there's no hope for him, desperately does not want anyone he knows or loves to land there with him. It is not a party. Apart from the agony and pain of hell is also the isolation, isolation, isolation and being cut off from all good. It will not be one big, loud, long, New Year's Eve, drunken orgy. It will not. Verse 29, Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Pray with me. Oh God, I pray that you would take this sobering passage with eternal implications and work it into us. Not in a way that we're entertained or amused or informed, but in a way that we're transformed to live for what matters most this year and every day you give us breath. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Now, as I alluded to, there's so much in this passage that I could unpack regarding hell and eternity and final destinations of every person. But for the sake of time, I simply want to focus on those last three verses, verses 29 to 31, where you can see that Jesus exalts God's word. Jesus exalts God's word in the face of what seems like a constant cry of the human heart that was true in his day and it's still true in our day. And it's this. Give me the supernatural and I'll believe. But in verses 29 to 31, Jesus in his parable makes it absolutely clear that God's word, the word of God is more effective than any human testimony or any spectacular event that we could engineer to try to convince people to believe. That's what Jesus is doing in verses 29 to, 20 to 31. You see, once the rich man realized that there was no hope for him, he could not have mercy now. Notice what he thinks will make all the difference for his brothers and what he's convinced will keep them from heading down the same path and arriving where he is. Look at it again in verse 27. He says, oh, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them. We need someone who was dead. They knew him. They knew him lying at my front gate near near my mansion. They know him. If he comes back from the dead and he testifies, they'll believe. So here's what I want you to get fixed in your head and your heart as we head into a new year with people all around you who are created in the image of God and will spend eternity somewhere. People you work with, people who live on your street, people who are related to you, people that you interact with in the stores and on the internet. Here's what I want you to get fixed in your head and your heart. Jesus points us back to God's word as the most Effective, powerful hope for lost sinners. Look at it in verse 29. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now, that phrase, Moses and the prophets, is simply shorthand for the scriptures, the Old Testament. Moses wrote the first five books. So they would call it Moses. And the rest are basically prophets, minor prophets and major prophets. So he is, in other words, saying they've got the Old Testament scriptures. Let them hear that. Get this. Jesus had confidence in the Old Testament only to help people know God. Folks, we've got a completed canon of Old and New Testament today. We've got it better. We've got more. We've got greater clarity. We've got a new covenant. We've got a record of a crucified, resurrected Jesus Christ. We should have even greater confidence in God's word. Jesus did. Jesus did. But you can see how the rich man still pushed back just like we do sometimes, right? He says, oh, if something supernatural like somebody coming back from the dead could happen, then I know they would repent. You got to send someone back to the dead, from the dead. Does Jesus back off and say, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? Thank you. We got to give them more than words. That's never going to get it done. That's what we did with you. That's how you arrived here. Let's not do that all over again. You're right. Does Jesus back off? In fact, notice how without hesitation, this is my second point, Jesus dismantles the thinking that we need something more effective and flashier than God's word. Look what he says in verse 31. If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Jesus gives no place for second-guessing or doubting the effectiveness and power of God's word. But oh, how the human heart craves the spectacular, doesn't it? That's what drives us with X Games and thrill-seeking and amusement parks and the study of paranormal and supernatural things like angels and spirits and demons and Ouija boards and witchcraft. No doubt the human heart has a fascination with and a thirst for the supernatural. But stay with me. Do not make the mistake of equating that thirst and that quest 
for the supernatural with a willingness to repent and believe in the God of the Bible and his son, Jesus Christ. The human heart on its own does not want that. You see, maybe you don't know this, but people don't repent based on emotions or spectacular events. You say, really? Have you been guilty? You don't have to raise your hand or answer, but I think we all feel it sometimes like, all we got is the Bible now. I wish we were in the book of Acts. Someone needs to get healed. Someone needs to have an arm grow back on. Someone needs to do something needs to happen like it used to happen. Folks, read Acts. When miracles were done, did everybody believe? Was it just like, oh my goodness, because that blind guy, I mean, they would know the guy. From birth, we know he's been blind. You know what? I'm still not going to believe that's what you see in the Bible. Everybody still didn't believe. And sometimes we think if Jesus would just show up at Florence Mall or Kenwood Mall and do a few things, make a car levitate and spin in the air, just mass revival. No, there would not be mass revival. People don't repent based on emotions and spectacular events. You know that from reading the Gospels. Jesus would do things like feed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves and a couple of fish and have 12 baskets left over. And you say, well, maybe not a lot of people saw that. 5,000, when they counted in that day, they only counted men. So 5,000 plus women and children, 20,000 people just ate and saw leftovers. What'd they do? They said, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. That's all they did. They said, we'll make you the bread king. We'll never have to work again. Feed us, feed us, feed us, feed us. This is so cool. It didn't have the effect of causing everyone to believe he was who he said he was and to repent and follow him. But they loved the spectacular. They loved the convenience of it and what it could do for them. All it did was cause them to ask for more. The spectacular is never the cause of faith. It only stirs the heart for more. Remember that. The spectacular is never the cause of faith. It only stirs the heart for more. It's the outside eye candy that you say, that was amazing. I'd love to see more of that. And here's why. We, we crave the supernatural, but it's never enough. Only Jesus can satisfy And the Bible leads us to Jesus and feeds us with Jesus. Right here. Right here. Right here. It's God's word. Supernatural events alone can never get it done. In fact, shortly after, you say, really? Yeah, think. Shortly after this conversation he's having and telling this parable, he actually did raise someone from the dead who had the same name, Lazarus. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You can read all about it in John chapter 11. Jesus shows up in Bethany, which is like 11 miles from Jerusalem. Lazarus has been dead three days so that his sisters, when they saw him, actually said, Lord, if you'd been here, you could have done something, but you can't do nothing now. In fact, please don't. Don't open that. He's going to stink. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes out, still bound in grave clothes, and Jesus says, loose him. And oh my goodness, see in that day, when someone had died and you were significant, and this was a significant family, people just poured out, crowds were there and had been there, and not only would you scream and wail and weep, you would pay people to do it. The more people you had screaming and wailing, the more significant your family and your loved one was. So they've got paid screamers and wailers and weepers, music going, and family who actually care, weeping, wailing, screaming. Lots of people there. And he brings them out of the grave, bound in grave clothes, and John 11 says, every single person dropped to their knees and said, oh my goodness, you are God. You are the God man. You are the Messiah the Old Testament's been talking about. You are like no other. Yes? No? Do you know what it actually says? It says, and many turned away and plotted how they might kill Jesus and Lazarus. Yeah, they said, we already want Jesus dead. This guy just got raised from the dead by Jesus. He's bound to say nice things about him. Kill him also. 
we got to get rid of Lazarus now also. We can't have him walking around as testimony and evidence of what Jesus can do. Kill them both. That's how hard the human heart is, folks. Kill them both. Well, take it up a notch. Never mind Jesus raising a man from the dead named Lazarus. Jesus rose from the dead just as he had proclaimed and appeared to more than 500 different people in different locations over a course of many days. And scriptures say that the, the leaders and the people went to the Roman soldiers and said, here's some money. Please say that his disciples came to the tomb and stole his body away. We got nobody. The tomb is empty. This is going to cause a stir. People are going to actually believe he is who he says he was. Please lie. Take this money and say the disciples stole the body from the tomb. What is going on? What is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. The Bible makes it absolutely clear. Get this. Repentance and faith are a gift. God has to give you faith and God has to give you repentance. Now, no doubt, does the Bible just straight up say, repent and believe? Repent and believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Does it talk that way? It does. But here's a news alert. If you've ever wondered, why do so many people not believe? I thought that message was so clear. I thought that track was so good, and that's what changed my life. I thought that message I handed them just, it rocked my world, but they're just kind of like, eh. I thought my personal testimony of God healing me of cancer or, or how that prayer was answered. It's so evident there's a real God really at work, and he could work in their lives, and they're unmoved. Folks, that's why we... We, we're not supposed to get more worked up and say, we got to do it better. We got to get more clever. We got to spend more money. We got to have more bells and whistles. We got to, we got nothing is what we've got. But we have a merciful, almighty, seeking, saving God. And so you pray, oh God, save. And then you obey and speak this good news. But we don't have to make things happen. Why? Because we can't make things happen. So stop trying, but be obedient, be faithful, be courageous, take risk, and know that the heavy lifting is on his end. He has to grant faith. He has to grant repentance. It, repentance is never generated by getting enough of the, let me say it to you this way. Repentance is never generated by getting enough of the supernatural outside of you. It's only generated by the word of God inside of you exploding and persuading you and showing you of who God really is, who you are in light of who God is, and who Jesus is and what he did to solve our biggest problem. God's word does that. God's word has to do that. Repentance is never the result of someone adding up enough amazing things and saying, well, there was that, and there was that, and my mother always believed, and my grandfather, and I saw this, and there was an answer to prayer, and oh my goodness, now this person says they were healed of cancer. Enough. I see the statistics. It's piled up. I'm overwhelmed. I believe. What would they do? Just want more and less God. Repentance is the work of God's word exploding inside of people to persuade them of who God is. They've got to know God is real, God is holy, God is mighty. Then they've got to know who they are in light of who he is, that I, oh, I am a sinner. And then they've got to know that Jesus Christ is more than just a good man, a good teacher. He's the son of God, the savior, the only hope. God's word has to do that. Let me help you if you say, really? Prove that from the Bible, Brad. Two verses, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you grew up in the church, you know it, but maybe you've never really understood what you're supposed to be getting from that. For by grace are you saved through faith. So far, so good. Everybody agree? And that, not of yourselves. What's the that refer to? To faith. It is the gift of God. It, what's it referring to? The faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God has to change the heart and grant faith. Repentance is the same way. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, and let me show you what I'm talking about. 
This is a passage I pray for people, for hard hearts, for people that are rebelling, for people that are heading down a path and their life is just being destroyed while loved ones say, what are you thinking? What are you doing? Don't you see this isn't even good for you? And you just think, what is wrong with them? I'll show you what's wrong with them. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. God has to grant someone repentance so that they would even come to the truth and escape the snare of the devil who is... Now, this is not a special category of horrible people. You, think, you say, who, who is he talking about? Every human being prior to salvation. That's who he's talking about. That was you. That was you. It might be you today. I hope not. But it was certainly you, every single one of you as Christians, before God saved you, before you believed, before you repented... You would never have listened to the truth. It wasn't truth to you. You had no desire for it. And you were a slave to your own lusts and desires and your master, Satan. All while you thought you were free and doing your own thing, but you weren't. God has to give faith. God has to give repentance. That's why supernatural will never be enough. They say, what are you doing, Brad? I hope I'm helping you to realize, wow, I don't have to keep hoping. Well, I wish we had more. I wish we could do. I, I just wish, I just, we were, we're in the days of the book of Acts. I just, everything we need, folks, we have. Holy Spirit living in you. Word of God that is active and living and powerful. And this is how God brings people to himself. With the message of the gospel, the testimony of Jesus being who he is, and real people who are weak and extremely ordinary like us. Speaking it, sharing it, passing it on. That's how God saves people. Even the Apostle Paul. You know, you think about Paul and Peter and some of the disciples in the book of Acts that did miracles. You do realize that they did not always do miracles. That Paul didn't say, you know what gets it done? Opening blind eyes gets it done. So I'm just going to heal somebody every time. Acts 28, verse 23 From morning till evening, talking about Paul, from morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus by doing some amazing, spectacular, supernatural things. He levitated. No. Tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Paul sat with a group and used the scriptures to explain and try to convince them that, of who Jesus is using the Old Testament. Let me put it to you this way. True repentance is the result of God's word persuading people of who God is, who we are in light of who he is, and who Jesus is and what he's done to solve our biggest problem. You say, well, if that's what it's all about, God's word does all the heavy lifting, and God's word is effective and has the power, how are they going to hear? Aha. Glad you asked. Go to Romans 10. Go to Romans 10. We've been there before, but I want you to see it again in light of today's message. Go to Romans 10, verse 12. Romans 10, verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. So, folks, there's not different ways for people to be saved. The Jews kind of need a different deal, and Greeks... No distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him who they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they've not all believed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
Stop wishing you could do some ama- something amazing in the break room or by the water cooler so that people would listen to you. They would just say, okay, that's all right. That's pretty cool. Water cooler's up in the air. But hey, see if you can make, look out the window. See if you can make my car do that. Hmm? Water cooler's not that heavy. That's what the human heart would do. That is what, I kid you not, that is what they would do. You got the word of God. The word of God. See, when you read that, if you find yourself saying, oh my goodness, you mean he's counting on us like that? It's us? He's counting on us? Then this thing is doomed to failure. And it all looks so small and weak, doesn't it? Who's going to listen to words, especially words coming from somebody like me? You're not the first to feel that way or think that way. Go with me to 1 Corinthians 1 and look at how Paul describes this whole endeavor of what's going on with God building his kingdom and using his people in his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 summarizes it so well, what we feel on so many days. And we think, oh. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness. Sometimes don't you think, I hope this doesn't offend you to hear me actually say it. Sometimes don't you think, oh my goodness, this must sound so stupid. I'm saying that someone who lived 2,000 years ago, when that person, who I'm also saying was not just a man but was God, died, your sins were on him and were paid for by him. And at any rate, rose from the dead also. And now if you put your faith in him, you are forgiven The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The whole first part of that section I'm reading to you basically unpacks how foolish the message sounds. And then he's going to go on, for the sake of time I won't read it, but then he's going to go on, and some of you know it, then he starts to talk about how foolish and weak and ordinary the messengers look. So the message is foolish, and then he says, and oh by the way, have you forgotten? What about you? (laughs) Not many of you has he called are super wise, not many strong, not many powerful, not many. He's actually chosen the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are in the world. Why? Why has he done it this way? A foolish message and weak and very ordinary messengers. And then he says at the end of chapter one, that no flesh may glory in his presence. And folks, that's the way God's been working from the very beginning. It's not a new deal that he shifted to. From the very beginning... So how do you know, Brad? Get this. I would put it to you this way. God rarely chooses flashy. Biggest example? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. If we'd had a human committee of men and women putting that thing together, how would we have had him arrive? Guns blazing, taking out wicked people, techno flames, he's here. Just... He arrives in a manger, in a stable, born to a young teenage girl who rumors are spreading, has committed fornication. This is such a weak, sad way to begin. God has always been doing what he's doing. You think about Gideon. Had this huge army and God said, "Uh, we got a problem. What? Too many people. Too many people. Mm Mm-hmm. Tell everybody who's afraid, go home. That got rid of thousands. Well, yeah, I just peed my pants. I'll head out. I mean, I know I look brave, but I really don't like this. People get hurt every time. I've had friends die. I am so out of here. He said, still too many people. And he got it down to 300 people and then did what he wanted to do. God rarely chooses flashy, spectacular, big. He chooses little, small, weak And then does powerful, amazing things through that. Let me show you what I'm talking about. How it's God's word and weak people. Kelly Monroe was a Harvard student. Entered the medical program at Harvard. And she came to Christ. Listen to what she says. 
I grew up an atheist. While in high school, I had looked at many of the arguments for the existence of God, and I came to the conclusion that there was no God. Furthermore, my scientific training in high school and college had nurtured in me a mechanistic view of the universe. I did not believe in God. Now, if she made it into the Harvard Medical School, smart or stupid? Super smart. But watch what happens next. Don't be intimidated by super smart people. God saves them the same way. He has to grant them faith. He has to grant them repentance. And guess what? He chooses to use people to speak it and point them to his word. And you don't have to be smarter than them. It's like, I can't talk to her. She's smarter than me. Lots of people are smarter than you. (laughs) And me. Talk anyway. She says, during my first semester at Harvard Medical School, at the suggestion of Christian friends and acquaintances, I began to examine the Bible and to investigate the Christian faith. It was a reasonable request. I had never before read the Bible. And you will find that so many people that speak so confidently about what's wrong with the Bible, if you'll say to them, have you read it? Almost always, no. They are quoting what other people have said. I had never read the Bible, but was only quoting what others had said about it. At the very least, I thought after reading their book, I'll be able to tell Christians more accurately why they're wrong. Unfortunately, or rather fortunately, she's about to quote Hebrews 4.12. She says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. As I examine the Bible in detail for the very first time, my mind began to change. I saw the distortions and the misquotations of those who had argued against the Christian faith. And I saw the philosophical and historical evidences for Christianity. And in the scriptures, I also found God. He used the Bible. No one came into her dorm room and said, hey, I'm going to make your microwave spin, okay? Now I want you to believe Christianity. He said, why don't you read the Bible for yourself and examine it? Together for the gospel that's coming in April... In Louisville, several years ago, I was there and heard the testimony of a guy named John Joseph, who was a self-proclaimed atheist who said, I was living just for my own lust, and I was dealing cocaine on the side for extra money. And he said, one night, I just decided to check out the video by Bill Mayer. It's it's a mockumentary called Religious that just mocks any kind of religious belief. And he said, normally I like Bill Mayer. I'm an atheist, he's an atheist. But he said, I felt like even in this documentary, as a fellow atheist, he'd gone too far and it wasn't fair to Christianity. So I turned to my computer and I Googled Christianity, atheism, debate. And I found messages by Ravi Zacharias. And I listened and I, he's a great guy, by the way. Books and messages, check it out. And he said, then I Googled and I found Desiring God Ministries. What are the chances which lots of times we think John Piper, Christians are into that. Big God, sovereignty, election, Calvinist. Here's an unbeliever dealing cocaine, living for himself, listening to John Piper. And he said, I listened to sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon of John Piper. Until finally, after hours of God's word, I was converted to Christ and transformed. Rosario Butterfield was a tenured professor at Syracuse University in the literature department, a lesbian living with a lesbian lover and leading the student on-campus groups for gay and lesbian and transgender and promoting it ardently. When she, for a research project, because she's a literature major, decided to research and study the Bible over a period of two to three years, and listen to this also, as well as that, as well as one local church pastor who loved her, who did not stand outside her office with a sign that said, faggots go to hell, Uh uh-uh. He wrote her lovingly and challenged her on her beliefs and invited her to his home for a meal, and she went. And his wife and he, and he was a pastor of a little church, just simply loved her and were not caustic, were not angry, were not shouting, and she studied the scriptures, and she saw real Christians for the first time up close, she said, that shattered some of her categories and thoughts about us. And through the scriptures, she said, she came to believe. She had to walk away from everything. This, this cost her dearly, and you can read about it in her book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Just last week, sitting in my chair in the living room, I finished a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. 
brilliant young student that went to Old Dominion University to study medicine. I mean, he was from Pakistan, from a family that believes it. His mom and his dad were both leaders, well-read. They had a library full of not just the Quran, but all the commentaries that go with it. And they knew why they believed what they believed. But get this. A Christian student on the sidewalk, when they pulled up, just stepped up and said, didn't know him at all. Hey, do you guys need help carrying your stuff up? Help them carry all their stuff up. And then didn't turn Nabil into a project. Actually was his real friend. Loved him. Listened to him. Laughed with him. Answered questions. And challenged him and said, have you ever read the Bible? No. All he had was what he had been taught about it. He said, I challenge you. Study the Bible for yourself and compare it to the Quran. And as Nabil did that, as much as he did not want to believe it, he said, he said there is no comparison, he said, the Bible to the Quran. He said the Quran is so, it's mishmas, all stuck together, stories start halfway through and they don't finish. And this is him talking, not me, because I haven't read the Quran. He said there was no comparison to the Bible and the Quran. And he said as he studied the Bible, he became convinced of Jesus Christ as who he was and of the only hope in Christ and salvation. And he, it cost him his family and he had to walk away from his family and all that he knew. I could stand up here and tell you stories all day, but here's what I want you to hear in all of this. God's word is powerful to convict and convince people of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done. So get this. Speak it. Type it. Blog it. Tweet it. Live it. This is the power. This is where the power is. First, you need to know it yourself, but then speak it, type it, blog it, tweet it. Don't, don't ever let it be that you're caught up with someone and it's just an argument with you and them and you're just using your own words, 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 words. As I talk with people, I look for opportunities to say, like when I'm talking to a guy that's committed Jew, I, I was like, have you read Isaiah 53? No, read Isaiah. I want to leave people with, this has power. I'm convinced long after I get off the plane, if that man chooses to sit down and read Isaiah 53 that's in his own part of the Bible that he uses, God could use that to ignite, open his eyes, show him Christ. When I shared with a guy recently, he said, read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and make a decision about Jesus. Folks, point people to Jesus and do it by pointing them to God's word. It is just as powerful today as it has ever been. We don't need more. Stop wishing you had more than God's words. Stop wishing you were more powerful and could do the spectacular. Spend this year digging into this for yourself, living it out, and speaking it in love. Oh God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. And thank you that you have power today to work in people's lives to change people, to grant faith and repentance, to take people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son, and you choose to use us as we step onto that middle school campus, us on that university campus, us in that neighborhood, us on that plane, us, 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 us. Help us to speak. And may your word run and be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.